The first lesson today comes from Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Today's second lesson is from 1 Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. 
From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Please open our ears, open our hearts. Give us integrity to hear what you're speaking to us as a people at St. Bartholomew's, to us as individuals, and to see your great love, not only for us, but for the entire world and creation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to see everyone tonight. It's a beautiful day outside. I love patterns. I've always loved patterns. And when I say I love patterns, I don't mean like red, yellow, green, red, yellow, green, red, yellow, green. Keep going. I I like those patterns too. Those are fun. But I love to observe patterns in people, patterns in just the way things are. Um, You may remember, you may recall that I remember you, your name, maybe random details about you, or maybe I remember the wrong name of you. I'm looking at some of you, I remember a wrong name before. Um, that's just part of my genius, by the way. I just, I remember the strangest things, but patterns catch my eye. License plate numbers. Uh, but really, as a kid, there was something about music that would always affect me. And I realized, wait a minute, this song by, you know, fill in the group of late 80s, early 90s, sounds a lot like this song of another group from late 80s, early 90s. And I realized as I learned more about music theory uh, as a growing teenager, wait, this is, there's a pattern here. There's something happening. This same chord progression is happening in several different songs. And many times it affects me deeply. And in fact, I just, I didn't know what it was, but I just thought, why does music affect me the way it does? And why do certain patterns and chords and certain uh, progressions and certain pairs of instruments and combos and the way that bass guitar, man, hits when that kick drum hits, especially like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the way Stan Lynch would play those drums so hard. So many good songs out there. Patterns. Tonight, I don't know if you noticed, if you were paying attention, if you're being good little boys and girls, but there were some patterns in the three lessons, weren't there? There was a pattern of the living God encountering individuals. And each of these encounters followed the same general rhythm or format. So there was a vision or a moment of encounter. There was a confession from the human, not from God. And then there was a call. Now, in this call, there's an understood absolution of sin. There's an understood call issued forth by God and a response by the people. And just like ingrained in my being, certain sounds just elicit a a, a visceral reaction, just a gut sort of reaction, Scripture is, is filled with these sorts of patterns that God's trying to draw our attention to. And if you'll notice, each of these encounters is built around the being of God, of who God is, the living God, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, Jesus, the Son of God, this miracle worker, and Jesus, the living, resurrected Son of God who knocked Saul off his donkey. I've always wanted to ride a donkey just to see what it would be like to get knocked off the donkey. Not really. Or to hear them bray. Is that the word for the hee-haw? Is hee-haw on? 
So, each of these encounters is built around the being of who God is in the integrity of his being, and it's built around who each of these individuals are in the integrity of their being, in the solidness of their self. Does that make sense? Let's dive in now. If you have your bulletin, we're going to flip back and forth. Each of these encounters could be mined for their beauty, for their depth. We could spend weeks on Isaiah's vision of the living God in the temple, but we're going to fly through them because I want you to see the what? The patterns. Good. See what I did? Already got you there. We're going. All right. First, let's look at the vision in each three of them. First of all, Isaiah. Isaiah has a heavenly vision, correct? Because that's not something you see every day as you're walking down the side of the road. The Lord in the temple, high and lifted up. And what's around the Lord in the temple? Seraphim. And you'll recall from Chris's eloquent sermon a few weeks ago that seraphim are what? They're the angels. They're on fire. They're flaming. They're around God and they're singing this song. And so Isaiah has this heavenly encounter. And remember that these encounters are kind of built around the integrity of who these people are. According to Jewish tradition, Isaiah was in the royal family. His father, Amos, or Amos, is the brother of Amaziah, a king of Judah. And so Isaiah's vision is a royal vision that God is, in, and indeed he is, the living God is high on his throne. And the train of his robe fills the temple and the smoke fills the temple and the thresholds and the doorposts shake. God is this powerful, imposing, but beneficent being. That's Isaiah's vision. And notice St. Paul's vision. And we kind of have to read into this a little bit to see St. Paul's vision. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul speaks really of a vision of being born. Think about Paul for a moment. He was a Jew of Jews, groomed and has a pedigree to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. So Paul is going to be a ruling Jew, someone that everyone looks to. Everyone knows that Paul, or excuse me, Saul at this time knows the answer, that Saul has got it right, that Saul knows the law, you know, fill in the blank. And notice what Paul says of his converted self, says of his self in his encounter with the Lord God. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, as to one untimely born, remember that phrase, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared also to me. So the encounter that God has, that the living Lord Jesus has, now, now think about this for a minute. Put this in theological and salvation history perspective. Saul comes on the scene after Jesus has been raised from the dead, after he's ascended into heaven, which doesn't just mean that he's taken an elevator to a higher elevation. It means that now he is at the right hand of the Father. N.T. Wright, English theologian, Anglican theologian, describes the right hand of the Father as the control room of the universe, where in his absence from us on the face of this earth, he can be truly present to us at all times, in all places, because he's where? At the right hand of the Father. 
The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the day of Pentecost. And Saul, this good Jew of Jews, with the pedigree to be the best of the best, he's in the top gun of Jews. Okay, He's taking his donkey to, to Damascus, and a bright light shines. It's, it's the Lord Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus, knocks him off his donkey, Saul, Saul. Saul realizes it's the Lord. Why do you persecute me? Saul was persecuting the church, but Jesus says, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So this is Saul's encounter. But he describes it to the church at Corinth in this way in verse 8. Last of all, parentheses, it's understood, Jesus appeared to me as, to, as one who was an untimely born. The Greek word there is ektroma. It is literally translated an aborted fetus. A very graphic image. What Paul is saying is that not only was I as good as dead, I was never even being. I was nothing. One commentator, Anthony Thistleton, we've referred to him quite a lot in this series through 1 Corinthians. But he said Paul uses this to illustrate that he was kind of like a monster to the Christians. Not a real being. And so in Paul's encounter, Jesus resurrects this one untimely born. Gives life and grace to this aborted fetus. Remember, these encounters are built around the integrity of who each of these people are. And lastly, this, we have an encounter with Jesus and some of his disciples. This is at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 5. And we know that, well, there's a lot of name changing happening, isn't there? This is, Peter's still Simon. So they're around Capernaum. They're at the Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret, Chinnereth, whatever, whatever you want to call it. They're at the Sea of Galilee, and all the people are around Jesus, and he wants to teach. And he gets on one of the boats, and the boat just happens to be Simon. And they shove off, and there creates this natural amphitheater across the, the face of the water. And Jesus is teaching. Everybody's in awe. But what happens is Jesus encounters Peter, excuse me, Simon and James and John in the middle of their livelihood. These guys didn't just fish because it was fun, which is fun to fish sometimes. If you like to touch fish, I don't. He encounters them in the middle of what they're doing in their daily lives. It was their toil. It was their passion. And he presumes to tell them how to do it. Push off into the deep, Jesus says. Well, everybody knows, Jesus. You don't fish in the deep end. We fish shallow. We, we cast these nets. We fish in the shallow area. But Simon, already, he, he understands because Jesus has just healed his mother-in-law, which could be endearing, but we're not quite sure. I love my mother-in-law. Simon says, but at your word, I'll do so. And so Jesus encounters them in this sense where they pull in all of these fish, so many fish 
that they can barely get the boats back to shore. Clearly the best catch they've ever had. So here we are, three moments of encounter. Are you following me? Do you see the pattern? In all three of them, well, who, how does God portray himself? Powerful, totally other. The church word or Bible word for that is holy, holy, holy. If something's really holy, you say holy, holy, holy. Miraculous, completely wise, worthy to be followed, worthy to be trusted. Now, in each of these encounters, we discover a confession, a moment of realization. For Isaiah, it's in verse 5. Woe is me. Maybe there was a euphemism in there. Woe is me, he says. For I am a man of, an un of unclean lips. For I am lost. <laughs> almost, we almost hear what Paul had to say about himself. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the, the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah understands that no one can see the living God and live. Isaiah would have known what Moses told the people and what the Lord told Moses there at Sinai. Isaiah would have known, and so what did he have to do? All he could do. It's almost, again, almost this just reflexive reaction. When you're in the presence of utter holiness, all you can do is bow and confess and beg for mercy. It wasn't because God was putting his boot on his neck and holding him down. It's simply because of the integrity of the being of God. Of God Almighty. That with the word of his mouth created everything that you see and is still creating. The one around whom all of creation will bow. Woe is me, Isaiah confesses. I'm messed up. My people are messed up. I'm lost. I've seen the one. Hmm. Paul's confession tells us that he knows the depth of the depravity that he possessed before he met the risen Lord Jesus. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, For I am the least of the apostles. He'll say in another place, I'm the chief of sinners. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because... Not only am I like one untimely born, an aborted fetus, but I also persecuted the church of God. So Paul is still confessing by way of telling the Corinthians how they ought to behave, what manner of love they ought to live in, how they should conduct their very power and gift-filled services in the midst of all that, in the midst of reminding them of the core of the gospel, for I delivered to you what was given to me by our Lord Jesus, he tells them, I'm the least of all because I persecuted the church of God. And Simon, oh, Simon. Simon's moment is really fantastic. So they haul in these fish, Luke 5, 
They barely get the boats back to shore before they sink. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I think Simon is scared to death. And I don't think he's just putting on airs. Oh, go on. He's scared to death. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. You seeing the pattern? The living God displays who he is in a real and concrete way. Those individuals involved reflexively respond. Depart from me. I'm sinful. I'm the worst. They're not being self-deprecating. They're not groveling for ceremony's sake. They're not kneeling because that's what you do when you're standing in front of the Messiah. They're falling down before God in worship and confession. Now, maybe you've noticed, here's another pattern. Our whole worship service is based around this sort of encounter. We come into God's presence. We worship him in song. We immediately do what? We hit the deck. We kneel in confession. And the rest of our service is revelation from God, absolution, call, and our response to him. So what is the call and response that God issues excuse me, to Isaiah, Paul, and these new apostles? Well, for Isaiah, there's this beautiful image. Isaiah 6, 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Hmm. Probably a rhetorical question. But as Isaiah's sin is atoned for by the, the flaming angel that comes to him with a, with a coal from the altar to touch his lips and to atone for his sin in this moment of absolution, then is issued forth a call, an invitation. What does it mean to be called to something? As I look around, I think about what you all do for a living. Some of you may be at crossroads of various kinds in your call. Your call may not be what you do to make money. It may be. But what is it that God has called you to do? Hmm. Who will go for us? Who will we send? And Isaiah's response is a perfect model for us. Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Notice what Isaiah doesn't say. I do this well, God. Oh, I know these people. I can probably pull that off. He doesn't even respond like Moses. God, I can't speak. I stammer. Here am I. Notice the verb. He uses a being verb. You have all of me, God, from the depth of my being and everything that flows out in my doing. 
here am I. Isaiah responds to the integrity of God's being all-powerful and awe-inspiring and terrifying as it is with a like response with the integrity of his being. Here am I. Send me. Paul, what is his response? His response we can, we can see in 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. We know that the risen Lord Jesus gave to Paul the gospel to preach. We find out later that it's to, expressly to the Gentiles. But Paul says this to the church at Corinth. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul received something from the Lord Jesus. He was given, he was, something was put in his hands and it wasn't for him to keep and it wasn't for him just to, just to notice and then set to the side. It was for him to receive and then to give back. Do you know what the Latin word to, to uh, hand something down? It's the word tradition, traditio. So if something has been received, it is part of our tradition, part of our traditio. And to give it back is to reditio. So Paul is going to receive this gospel from the Lord, and in the integrity of his being, he's going to preach it. But notice what Paul says in verse 10. Skip ahead in that passage. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I have this holy activity as an apostle, though least of all I am. But above everything else, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you hear this? In the integrity of his being, Paul, acknowledging the goodness and love of the living God expressed in our Lord Jesus Christ, says, hey, this is who I am. I am what I am. I receive the forgiveness of the Lord. I answer the call by preaching. And at the end of the day, I am who God has made me to be. Hmm. Now let's catch back up with Simon, Peter, and James, and John, these apostles to be. In this moment of call, what does Jesus tell them? Look at verse 10 of Luke 5. You're doing such a good job, by the way, of following with me as I jump around on a little pogo stick. Uh, Luke, 5, chap- uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 10. Peter's just confessed, and everyone sees this, and Jesus says to Simon directly, do not be afraid. His correction to Simon has to do with fear. And for me, out of this whole sermon, out of all these things and these patterns I'm trying to draw our attention to and that we're going to apply to our life in just a second, to me, this is the operative phrase. Isaiah, Paul, Simon Peter, Matt, Reed, Mark, Megan, Kirtley, do not be afraid. The living God in his mercy, in the integrity of his being, speaking directly to you and to me, to Simon Peter. Do not be afraid. 
And what was their response? It wasn't coerced. From then on, they left everything and followed him. In that moment, their everything was their livelihood. They had just had the biggest catch of fish they've ever had. We just had a record quarter, Jesus. And we're finally going up and to the right. We're finally there. We finally hit all the things. All my internal goals, all my external goals. I didn't even offend any coworkers. And they left everything. Not because Jesus coerced them. Not because he had his, his boot on their neck or his sandal on the back of their head. But because they saw, they confessed, and he said, don't be afraid. In the integrity of who you are, in the solidness of yourself, don't be afraid. You've been doing this. You've been catching fish. You know what you're going to do now? You're going to catch men. You're going to fish for men and for women to preach to them the Holy Gospel. Think about the patterns of your own being. Think about it cumulatively. When I say that, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe there's been a time when you felt like you've encountered God reading Scripture in worship, in, in quiet prayer. Maybe you've been hiking or what, whatever. Maybe in your cubicle. I don't know. I don't know how the Lord speaks to you and how you're wired. I know for me, a lot of it does happen when music is involved. Like I said earlier, this part of my pattern. But think about the patterns of your being. And what is the cumulative effect of God's revelation of himself to you in encounter, in vision, in word? What does it point to? Moreover, in response to that, what has been your confession? I get it, God, but I'm afraid. Or that doesn't just, that just doesn't make sense. Or, woe to me. You're right. Or, yes, God, to whom much is given, much is required. Is it like Paul? Is it like Isaiah? Is it like Peter? And lastly, and, and guys, these are things to think about, not just tonight, you know, because I know you're going to forget what I'm saying right now. But these are things to carry with you all your days. If we want our lives to be oriented, the integrity of our being to be oriented around who God is, these are the kind of questions we should ask ourselves. And the last thing is, what is the call that God is ushering forth to you issuing to you, and what is your response? According to the integrity of your being, not being coerced, not because J.A. said so, but because the living God has so said to you, I love you. I am a terrifying living God, but I love you, and I love you, and I've sent my son to you to rescue you and to redeem you. And I've sent my spirit to live inside you, to bring you revelation and to guide you. According to that, what is your response?
Is it worth facing the fear that might bubble up as you think about it? Is it worth discounting what other people may think? Is it worth searching the scriptures to see the way that God has led his other people in times past to understand how he might be leading you in the future? Is it worth dropping your nets, your livelihood, the biggest catch you've ever had in order to follow our Lord Jesus? Let us pray. God, we're mystified by you. We love you. And we pray that you'd speak to us now. You are the one that we have waited for. All the desires that try to imitate you, all the things that try to duplicate who you are, we set them aside and we confess that you are the one that we've waited for. We beg you to continue to reveal yourself to us. Remind us of all the ways in the past that you've shown us yourself. Invite us into a space of confession. And Lord, show us the way forward. Show us how not to be afraid, but to follow you. Pray this in the name of our living Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.